0: the show is the show but the people are the story this is backstage stories crew are people too taking you behind the scenes of the live entertainment industry to meet the unsung road warriors who help make the stars
2: shine here's ted bird
3: it's episode three of backstage stories crew are people too i'm ted bird and joined today by the executive producer of Crew Are People too. Backstage Stories, Gislain Arsenault. That's Gislain Arsenault, not Gislain Dufour, which was a small mistake I made <laughs> in our very first episode when I misnamed the guy who actually uh, pays for the podcast and set the whole thing up. Ghislain is the owner and president of Truck and Roll, which puts on this podcast. And good news for Giselin, although this is a podcast and you might be or probably will be listening to it on a day different than the day that we're recording. But on this particular day, there aren't too many trucks in the yard, Gislein, and that's a good sign. Yeah, the last month have been like, you know, when we met a few months
1: ago, there was no show in Canada. The U.S. was starting slowly, but now the demand, you know, the governments decide, okay, let's do a theater at capacity, which is going to take a few months before you see shows at the ACC, the Bell Center, Share, all of the arena. But in the US, it's going, it's going fall out. And now there's not, you know, we talked about that. If you remember when we did the first podcast, there's not enough labor now to, for the supply. There's like, you know, trade shows are starting, live shows are starting. And it's, you know, I thought labor would be a big issue, but the trucks are a bigger issue because the supply chain, if everybody knows about supply chain right now, you can't find a truck in Canada, can't find a truck in the US. And if you order a truck today, you have to wait about 14 months. So it's, you know, we're not, like I said, we're still f- trying to figure out what 22 is going to be like as far as touring or any industry. Because if, like I said, the supply chain is off the truck wrong, and it's not only in music, it's everything. So, you're, you know, it's going to be, there's a lot of smart people trying to figure it out. And we, you know, and then... Like I was just saying, as we were talking, Celine just canceled her shows in Vegas. So we've been working like crazy to, to do the opening in Vegas on, I think it was November 5th. So we've been working for two months, trying to deliver the gear for the first show. And now she has medical reasons. And so all that crew said, okay, what do we do now? Cause you can, now we can shift to something else. So it's going to be, like I say, you know, we, we might try to, you know, do the borders are opening soon. We might try to go back to some normal but it's going to
3: be another while before we find out what normal is. Our guest today is recently retired, and he's a pretty smart guy. Maybe he's got some ideas. Terry DeMonte is a member of the Canadian Broadcast Industry Hall of Fame, inducted in 2021. He is a a Montreal cultural icon as a longtime radio host, and he's the second best-looking guy on Standing By, the Terry and Ted podcast. Hello, Terry DeMonte.
0: Hello, Ted. Very excited you got my name right. I did, yeah.
3: (laughs) Well, if I I can't get your name right after 35 years or however long it's been, I might as well give it up.
0: Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. I was excited about the invitation because it allows me to speak of a, a very, very brief time in my working career where I was not in radio. So this should be fun. Well, I don't know how many people
3: know this, and I was not aware that you were out of radio for as long as you were between 1981 and 84, a full three-year absence from radio to join the music industry. Tell us what spurred that decision and uh, what the job was that you took on.
0: I'm going to try and tell the story so that you know people that are listening can relate to it because it was so long ago. But I was doing the afternoon show on a rock station in Winnipeg called 92 City FM. And I had become very good friends with a man named Gary Stratichuk. Gary Stratichuk was the head of a company called Star Command Productions. And Star Command Productions was a partner of Donald K. Donald and Michael Cole, and uh, norman norman perry on the west coast and those three gentlemen were the concert mafia back in the 1980s they owned every avail at every arena in the country from coast to coast to coast and gary was a partner whose territory was manitoba saskatchewan and all the concerts that came through there gary was the promoter for he also was the manager of a band called Streetheart and the Queen City Kids. And I had seen Streetheart play at a theater in Winnipeg shortly after I arrived. And I turned to my girlfriend at the time and I said, These guys are going to be massive stars. I was completely taken with them. Became good friends with him, had many dinners with him. And over the course of, I would say, a year and a half, maybe two year friendship, I became friends with the band fascinated with the record business, fascinated with the touring industry, fascinated with the inside machinations of how the music business and concert business worked. And Gary convinced me to come and run his record company. He had a very, very small record company called Pressure Records. And he convinced me to come and be his partner and help him with uh, management of the two main acts, discover new music acts. I spent a lot of time in bars over the course of those two years and become a liaison between the bands and the big record companies we were dealing with. So it was a very, very interesting three years of my life.
3: From the time you were a small child, you knew you wanted to be on the radio. How difficult was the decision to go from radio into the music business?
0: It was very difficult, and I, I, was, I must admit, you know, I was 20, I was naive, I was starry-eyed. Anybody will tell you, if you stand side stage for a show where 18,000 people are there, you know, once the lights go down and the crowd roars, it's very, very seductive. You can become quite taken with it quite quickly, especially when you're 20 years old and i'm excited that we're going to talk today about the behind the scenes work that goes into it because jesus christ nobody works harder than a crew backstage and i learned that from the time that i I began to work with the bands but a long-winded answer not a surprise program directors over the years will say jesus there he goes again it was a really really difficult decision because i loved radio so much I was doing really well. The people in the radio game thought I was crazy. And really, I was going to work for this startup. You know, Streetheart were a successful band. Their first album went gold. The Queen City Kids, their first album went gold. But, you know, they were, Queen City Kids were playing in clubs. Streetheart struggled to draw crowds in the East. But I thought, you know, and Gary convinced me, we're going to grow this company You're going to see we're going to be the clive davis of canada we're both going to get rich and i was like okay yeah (laughs) and we had one great year the year that i joined we had a great year we broke even in the second year and it all went into dumpa in the toilet in the third year we went bankrupt
3: she's like you were nodding your head at some of the names that terry was uh, rattling off as promoters you're the same age as us do you go back as far as terry does in the music business
1: or work with Jeff Perry right now. I've been working for Jeff Perry from Calgary for the last twenty five years, so he's he's still like he's doing amazing. He's doing like we will rock you, let it be. A lot of cover bands throughout America. It's a lot of those people you're you're naming. It's funny because I started in eighty four in a business. So by the way, like you know, you're we're about the same age. So you're finishing in eighty four. I'm starting. I'm doing more local with with Donald Kay. You know, which we said we should do. Like stories about Donald, but you know, imagine Michael Cole and you know Bruce Allen and Perry. It, those all the the people that pretty much made you know live music happen in Canada. Those people, and it started probably late seventies at the Forum, and then you got the the eighties. But these people, some of those people are still you know making music, and their sons or family or children are now in the business too. So it's it's you know it's funny. It's forty years of music that we're talking about.
0: I'm glad you said that, Gislaine, because I tell people that all the time. I don't think, for example, in Montreal, Donald K. Donald doesn't get near enough credit. Donald and Norman on the West Coast and uh, Michael Cole. Michael Cole changed the way the concert business was run. But if you look back at the early 1970s, when Donald K. Donald was doing concerts, These guys started the business in Canada. And the reason that people our age have all of these amazing concert memories is because Donald K. Donald took the risk, found the money, guaranteed. You know, Donald will tell you great stories about him sitting across the dinner table with Elton John's manager, John Reed, and going, Fuck you, I'm not paying you that kind of money. And John Reed going... Well, fuck you then, because that was not going to tour your fucking city. And they they would yell and scream at each other, and they would come to a gentleman's arrangement and shake hands. And, you know, lots and lots of money would get exchanged in order for these acts to, you know, the managers of these acts made sure that the local promoter had to put a lot of money up up front so that these men's would come so that all the trucks the grizzly has and all of the crews get paid for and arrive the night before and all of that stuff managers of these big big acts demanded a lot of money up front and then took a portion of the gate so the reason that so many montrealers and in toronto you know so many torontonian's all canadians all across the country have this rich experience with concerts is because of really Three or four men who had the vision to bring shows to the country and had the balls to gamble. You know, they gambled a lot of nights on acts and got stuck with a lot of bills and a lot of empty seats. Not every act is Elton John or Aerosmith. You know, there, there are nights when, you know, you take a, a risk on Dickie Do and the don'ts and you don't do so well. <laughs>
3: That story about Donald Kay and Elton John's manager reminds me, and I'll ask Gislam, I'm putting you on the spot, Gislam, because this could be telling tales at a school. Can you tell the Bruce Allen story? Well, first of all, for for people who don't know, who is Bruce Allen? Bruce manages, right now, Michael Buble. He's from Vancouver.
1: I think, you know, a lot of the bands from Vancouver, I think Loverboy. Anne-Marie was with, with Bruce. Like, he, he's an icon in, in the BC area. And like I say, you know, he's been running Michael Bublé's career now almost full time. So, Brian Adams also. Yeah. So, just, you know, you, you think Vancouver, you think he's a big hitter. So, I'm, I'm seriously, I'm working for Bruce for a lot, for at least 10, 15 years. And we're in Toronto, we're having dinner, and we sit, and he looks at everybody, he looks at me, he's like, I don't know you. You know, you work for me. He say, Yeah, said, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, he said, It's a good thing you don't know because you haven't screwed up yet. <laughs> So it's, it's kind of, but it's, it's true. Backstage, sometimes you just do what you do. A lot of our crew, we just, like, you see familiar faces. Some people, like, there's a good story. I, I mean, if, I, if you may, I know it's, oh, about, I, I know yeah, it's yeah. about Terry today. No, but it's
3: not. It's a freewheeling conversation. It's
1: You know, what I was really impressed with Pink on the last tour, Pink had a book of a picture of everybody on tour with their name, and she would learn. Everybody on production, from the truck driver, the bus driver, catering. She knew everybody. She would walk, and she had her two kids and a nanny. She would walk, and as she walked, they get there in the afternoon. She could name everybody on her tour, and you're talking over a 100 people. So I'm always impressed with people that know you. It's okay if you don't know us, but some some talent. I think Pink is an exceptional
3: person because of stuff like that. I have never heard a bad word about her.
0: By the way, while we're talking about Pink, if you're listening to this podcast when you're finished, do yourself a favor and go to, if you have Amazon Prime, and watch the Pink documentary. If you want to know about behind the scenes, the cruise, all about Pink and how she deals with people, load in and load out. This Pink documentary is outstanding, and Bruce Allen is to vancouver what donald k donald is to montreal in terms of success and fame and Gislain he goes all the way back to the guests uh, not the guess who uh, uh backman Turner, overdrive and loverboy and one of the the great stories paul dean from loverboy told me that and randy backman has told me the story about bruce allen's initial agreement with these guys was with a handshake. And there is all bookers, all agents, all building owners will tell you there's no tougher son of a bitch than Bruce Allen when you have to do business with him. And that's because he's fighting for his artists and he protects his artists. The guys in Loverboy all bought their own islands after Bruce Allen took charge of their career. He's a real legendary, legendary guy. And I think it's really cool that you're working for him because he's like Elvis in the concert business.
1: Terry, I'll tell you a secret. 30 years later, how do you think I deal with Bruce? A handshake. I've been working with him. We write stuff. We write emails. But at the end of the day, a man of his word.
0: I hear, uh, hear those stories all the time. Freddie Turner from BTO told me at a lunch one day in Winnipeg that he was a little concerned at first because Randy and Bruce had this deal. And Bruce just said to him, listen, you're going to get a weekly salary and you leave the rest to me. And years later, Fred Turner's biggest problem was he didn't have to work anymore. They were involved in commercial real estate and all kinds of investment Bruce Allen made all of those guys wealthy beyond their wildest dreams because, you know, I mean, they wrote the songs and they did the touring, but Bruce managed the money and managed their careers in such a fashion that, you know, they're wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. And that's rare in the business. You hear more stories about bands that get taken by record companies and bad managers and I love the fact that Bruce Allen still looks you in the eye, shakes your hand and says, deal, this is the way we're going to do it. And then he honors that. It's remarkable.
1: And he, he surrounds himself with people like that too. Like some of the best people like, you know, Dean Rooney, Dean Rooney's from Brandon, Manitoba. It's funny about the Manitoba connection and music sometimes. Eh? And and Dean worked for, uh, for Bruce for many years and he's an amazing person. And I think, that's what happened. You know, you're surrounded with, with people like that and also the artists and all that. It becomes, you know, it's an amazing family when it's a good family. I'm sure there's families that are dysfunctional like anything else in, in the world. But when you get into a good family, it's very special.
0: Yeah, especially in that business. You know, there's there's a lot of money flying around. As will tell you, there's a lot of money flying around in that business. You know, whether you're dealing with the lighting guys, the people that truck and roll, the the stuff in and out of the buildings. And, you know, I've been backstage a couple of times when they're doing what they call the settlement at the end of the night. And I had to keep myself from going, holy shit, <laughs> that's a lot of money on the table. <laughs> you know, because they're, they're doing cash and they're doing cash settlements. And the road manager of the band is arguing with the local concert promoter and the local concert promoter's guys going, I'm not fucking paying for those sandwiches. And, and the road manager of the band is going, you have to pay for those sandwiches. I'm not paying that bill. And there are stacks and stacks of money on the table. And the first time I saw it, I, you know, like I said, I was wise enough to keep my mouth shut, but inside I was going, oh my God. <laughs> so the money
1: disappeared. The cash disappeared now because everybody's tapping or it's all credit, but it changed. But- the settlement's still there because there's crew, there's the rider, there's catering, there's like, so I'm sure there's still good conversation, but you were talking about, imagine the money that you're you're talking about 30 years ago with Al Hilton. Like, imagine the the money today because the tickets used to be 50 bucks. The tickets are 300 bucks now.
0: That's true, Gisley. You couldn't stack the money high enough today on a table. I I never even thought of that. But, you know, my point was with all that money kicking around, there's a lot of shysters around, and it's so rare. It's wonderful to deal with people who are honest and true to their word and look you in the eye. And to answer your question, Ted, I think maybe maybe I've dealt with four people like that in business over the years.
3: Yeah, I'm not surprised. Four actually sounds like a pretty high number. So the early 1980s, you're with Streetheart, and I was thinking after I spoke to you uh, the other day and we were setting this thing up, I was thinking about there was a really vibrant Canadian rock scene in the early 1980s. Uh, Off the top of my head, you know, I think of Rush, April Wine, Loverboy, Streetheart, Burton Cummings uh, was still churning out hits. Was it a more vibrant scene then than it is now, or was it just that I was at that age then when I was really into rock and roll and I was starting out in Canadian radio and we played a lot of those bands?
0: Well, I think you know, it could be because it was the era that we came up in. I think it was more vibrant back then. I can't think of too many, quote, arena acts, you know, Canadian arena acts. I think right now they're what would be called in the business soft cedar acts, people that can do, you know, 1,000, 2,500, 5,000 a night. You know, the exception to that, I guess, would I can't even think of an exception, to be honest with you, these days. You know, when you think of the Tea Party and uh, Tom Cochran still traveling and um, I can't even – a lot of bands are not not coming. You know, Billy Talent. I think Billy Talent could probably do arenas uh, these days. Nickelback, of course, yeah, big international success too. To your point, Ted – You know, Streetheart, Loverboy, April Wine, Rush, Bachman-Turner, Overdrive, The Guess Who, you know, the Tragically Hip. I think of the bands that uh, Streetheart would tour with. Streetheart would go on the road with April Wine or they would go on the road with, you know, one year they went on the road with Aldo Nova. When he was big, one year they did a, a tour with two bands out of Toronto called, one band was called The Headpins, the other band was called, toronto uh, named after the city those bands were short-lived successes but back then it just it seemed to me that there were more arena nights than soft cedar nights but maybe you know maybe i'm leaving a lot of bands off the table and i apologize if i am
3: well there are still big acts and jeslam moved some of them like celine and michael buble but the i was thinking more like a a rock and roll like the early 80s seemed to be a real a great era for Canadian rock and roll.
0: Yeah, big time. I mean, when I think of, I think back to some of the acts that were starting to record back then, you know, I remember when the first Red Rider record came out, that launched Tom Cochran's career. You know, he really had a heck of a run. And at one point was an arena act. And, you know, he wrote a couple of songs that bought him a lot of houses. Back then, there were a lot of, There seemed to be a a real, I don't know if it was a Canadian renaissance, but, you know, triumph, triumph. Those three guys could do three nights in Texas, 20,000 people a night. Rush had already conquered the world in the 1980s. They spent more time on the road in Europe and the United States than they did here. Rush broke at a radio station in Cleveland, and that launched their incredible international run They were bigger than Zeppelin at one point. So I don't think in terms of, of those bands, I think in terms of the bands that had to make a living touring across the country, like Streetheart, you know, Streetheart had to go to Drumheller, Brandon, Lethbridge, Saskatoon, Halifax, you know, the Annapolis Valley, Fredericton. These were, when I, when I say they literally toured every nook and cranny of the country, There were a lot of acts that that's the way they made their living. You had to go on tour. It's much like today, actually. I think Giseline will tell us this. The bands today can't rely on record sales. They've got to get their ass on the road and get their merch on the table and sell concert tickets. That's the way they survive.
1: I call it the treaties of uh, touring. You need truck tickets and T-shirt to make money. (laughs) You need a truck on the road, you're gonna sell a ticket and a couple of t-shirts and then you
3: can live because the album, any anybody will tell you, you know, the streaming and all that, they don't make enough money. They don't, eh? So whatever revenue they get from streaming doesn't compare to what they would have received from album sales back in the day. I think it's I was looking, I was reading something about it,
1: and it's it's like you're you're talking like forty to one or something. It's not even close, like
0: I was involved in, in the record deals that Streetheart signed in the, you know, the, the early 1980s and our royalty for an album with our deal with Capitol Records, I think we were getting a buck 30 an album. So, you know, if Streetheart would sell a hundred thousand albums, but then, you know, they would deduct money for promo and they deduct money for costs of the cover shoot and deduct money. So there wasn't a lot of money there. And it got to the point where you're actually trying to keep an act alive. And, Ghislaine can speak to this better than I can, but when you get to a level like an Aerosmith or a Rush, you're actually, you're taking your whole life on the road. I was lucky enough to get backstage to meet Garth Brooks when he played the Bell Center 15, maybe 20 years ago now. And Garth Brooks toured with people who cooked for him. His dressing room was on his rider, his dressing room had to be set up like an apartment. It had a couch, it had you know a coffee table, and side tables with lamps, and a dressing room off the dressing room where he could change, and a bathroom where he could go, and you knocked on the door of his, quote, dressing room, and it looked like an apartment. And outside, they had to set up a playroom for the kids that were part of the tour, and where the catering was, the catering was set up so that it looked like a home. And I asked him about it and he said, I'm on the road most of the year, we take home with us everywhere we go. And the logistics of setting that up and getting that from city to city on a nightly basis It's astonishing when you think of the logistics of moving it all. You know what? I just think of Garth's dressing room. You think of setting that up every single night just the way he wants it, making sure the playroom's set up, making sure the catering is set up. That doesn't even begin to talk about the stage and the lights and the sound and everything has to be just so. And I used to think, you know, these artists were divas until I understood more about the touring life. And when you understand about the touring life, like Garth said to me, he said, we're never home, so we have to bring home with us. It's the only way we stay sane. He said, that's why I love my crew so much. We rely on them to make this as comfortable as possible so I can do the best show I can. And that, that was a real eye-opener for me. You know, and Gislain can speak to the logistics and the the work that goes into setting that up every night. But it's really quite something to see. Yeah. These are 18 hours a day for, for,
1: you know, any any show. Like you said, the average tour will have four to five shows a week. So plus traveling. And usually you get in at eight in the morning and you start doing that setup that you're saying, you know, they they want comfort. They want to feel like, you know, yeah, I'm going to be on the road, but you want also the artist to be at the, best condition before they go on stage so if you give them comfort and their partner or their kids are around you want them and if they feel good they'll give you that energy and it's funny terry you were just saying earlier about the defeat mike one of my first tour was the backstreet boys if you remember in the 90s and i had never felt that noise go through your body and it, it reminded me probably of the beatles you always see the beatles at the shea stadium or whatever stadium it was back then in the 60s and the noise that went through your body, it's like, wow. And thats it's almost like it's the energy. We're just like working. So imagine the artists that get that energy also. So the touring part, the crew, like that, you do it for that too, because we never really watch the show. We just stand, you know, like we, you have a, Some of the drivers, they get up around 9 o'clock at night, so you catch maybe sometime like, you know, a couple of songs here and there, but the, that noise, it's like a drug almost. I was going
3: to say it sounds intoxicating.
1: Yeah, and like I said, you, you get, it's it's communication between production and, and everybody else. It's, you know, making sure, it's it's about discipline. I always say, you know, the, 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 uh, my father in is in the military and used to be on a ship, U.S. ship, U.S. Navy, for eight months, and he used to call it a tour. And I always thought there was a relationship between military and music, because in order to put a show at 8 o'clock, you have to have military teams. Precision to start at eight in the morning and be ready at that time. Like we we're trying to start here. You know, we're doing a little podcast. It costs like fifteen minutes to get the sound ready. So imagine the Bell Center with twenty two trucks to make it perfect every day. And so you have twenty thousand people that when they sit down, it's perfect. I mean you need the best people at what they do day in and day out. And believe me, there's problem. There's always problem. There's always something that happened. But it's amazing how the village pulls together. There's egos in touring like any like music, radio, TV, it's show business, Show business. there's ego, but it's, it's funny how everybody can pull together at one point to make sure that, you know, we give the best show to the people. That's what we like about what we do.
3: Have you ever thought I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal and everyone at my company, the sound off podcast network had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with, at soundoff.network. Terry, with Streetheart, I guess depending on what part of the country you were in, you would get vastly different crowd sizes, eh?
0: Yeah, it was always interesting to me and still is. You know, Streetheart is still doing what I call the, it's my term, nobody else's, uh, but what I refer to it as the Canadian Summer Fair Circuit. There's a circuit across, especially across the western part of the country, where there are a lot of summer festivals and fairs where guys like Tom Cochran and Burton Cummings and Streetheart and other acts of that nature and that, that era they can charge decent money and and you know draw five, six, seven thousand people for a Saturday summer night at an outdoor show in Saskatoon or Brandon or small towns in the interior in BC. When Streetheart was at their peak back in nineteen I would say nineteen eighty two, eighty three, you know, they were selling one of their records sold almost three hundred thousand units, which in Canada is triple platinum. So in the West, we would, you know, we would book a tour, and um, we could book the Winnipeg Arena, the arena in Regina, the arena in Saskatoon, the arena in Edmonton, the arena in Calgary, and the arena in Vancouver. And depending on which way the avails worked, we would move either from Winnipeg West, but then when we went Winnipeg East the crowds began to get smaller as we move. You know, we do Thunder Bay, and Thunder Bay we could draw about 6,000 people, and then we do Sudbury and draw 4,000, and then we do Sault Ste. Marie, and there'd be 2,200, and then we would go into Toronto and have to do a club, and then we would do uh, Club Montréal in Montreal, or Streetheart toured as a backup act with a lot of acts. They opened for ACDC in the early 80s at the Forum, And then we would do the club circuit in Nova Scotia. So it was weird and tough on the band's ego because, you know, I remember one tour was either 82 or 83. We did 18,000 people at the Coliseum in Edmonton. And on the same tour, they did a club in Toronto where 300 people were there. So it was really weird for them. And we were never able to figure out what the... East-West divide was with Street Art. It was a strange thing, with the exception of you know, a couple of songs, the most popular being Under My Thumb, their cover of the Stones song, seemed to resonate with fans in Montreal and Toronto. But other than that, it was a strange thing. And I and I know from you know, you get to know when you work so closely with the bands, you get to know the guys and musicians are interesting people, and they are Very, very complicated people. And I I understand it because people in radio are also dopey and full of ego and creative people react strangely to things like that. And it was tough for the guys in the band to come off, as Ghislaine was pointing out, the electricity that goes through your body when 18,000 people are screaming and cheering for an encore, that's a lot different than 200 people clapping. (laughs) you know it's it's just it was it was strange for the for the guys in the band
3: it's interesting you say that because we had miles goodwin on the last episode and i i never knew miles when april wine was in at their zenith in the 70s and 80s and he's now i think he's 73 years old and he was so easygoing and so funny and such a great storyteller when he was on with us and i think you can see it in his music as well he's mellowed over the years, as I think we all do. You know, we start to recognize our own mortality and we become different people. And uh, I thought it was a really nice conversation we had with Miles. It was really interesting, especially when I think of the stories that I heard of him before. And I think you knew him before I did. But I find that he's a pretty laid back and cool guy.
0: The Streetheart toured with April Wine and often opened for April Wine because there was a time, you know, when April Wine... April Wine was opening for the Stones after April Wine released Nature of the Beast. That record did really, really well in the United States. And um, I heard the guys, some of the guys in the band referred to it as our private jet days, (laughs) you know, when they toured at the top of their game. Miles was um, a bit of a different cat in those days, I was at Miles, I, I was sit, seated, not with Miles, but seated next to Miles at Ziggy's bar one night in Montreal and said something to him. And he snapped at me and I was drunk enough to say, what's your fucking problem? i said, say, what, what have you got to complain about, Mr. Rockstar? Mr. I thought, why on earth would you be crabby that being the idiot that I was? And he laughed, and we ended up having a nice conversation that night. It was, um, as you point out, Ted, We were I, I was young and stupid. He was younger and a little crabbier, and, you know, he was a, a, at a different place in his life. In his book, he talks about his drinking and, and how it nearly cost him everything. And, you know, so I, I met him at a tough time in his life, and, you know, being the dope that I was – You know, you just think, oh, you're a rock star. Everything must be great. (laughs) And it isn't.
3: Now, I asked you uh, when I was speaking to you before we went on, I said, bring some of your backstage stories, Tara. And I haven't even asked you about any of those yet. Are there any personalities? Let's start with that backstage who stand out to you from whether it's from your days with Streetheart or your days in rock radio?
0: You know, some of my favorite stories are there was a much Easier going way about the business in the 1980s, the early 1980s, there was less control. So I remember one night going to see you two at the forum, and the record guy, the record company guy saying to me, If you want to go backstage and meet the guys afterwards, and I I went backstage with a couple of people from the radio station and I remember saying, you know, I don't know who's going to come out, the drummer, what's his name, you know, because U2 was, you know, was 1980 or they were just getting started. And we were in the visitor's dressing room at the Montreal Forum and through the door walked Bono and The Edge. And they came in and said, hi, everybody. And Bono went to the beer cooler and cracked a beer and The Edge did the same and just started chatting with people. And I ended up sitting on the hockey bench next to the edge. And we were talking about everything but radio and records. We talked about guitars, we talked about Ireland. And one of the things that I I learned that night is, these guys are craving normalcy. (laughs) The guys that are on tour who are being worshipped every night and people are screaming for their pictures, if you end up sitting next to them and talking to them like a normal person, I was asking them questions about the towns they were from and he was asking me about what I did in my spare time and we were talking like sort of interested cats, you know, we're just sort of having a conversation and, and it always sticks out to me because when you think of you two now today, first of all, they wouldn't do backstage things like that anymore. And second of all, you couldn't get near them. If you could get near them, you'd find them to be very nice, but in this day and age, you, I don't think they would meet anybody backstage.
1: I was lucky enough to work for you 2 on the last tour. Remember, they, they were actually rehearsing Laval at the, uh, the Place, Place Belle. Oh, yeah? And, of course, it's a hockey game. The Rockets are playing. They say, just, now you got to take out 25 trucks tonight, the game, and then bring them back because, you know, we have to stop rehearsal. So just for one night. So we make it happen, 20, try to find 25 trucks for 24 hours. And I get there what change I think Terry's first is security. I think 9/11 changed everything for us coming in and out of a building. We, I used to walk in like a building like I used to own the place. Now I've got to f- go to a metal detector, I got a show ID, I've got If you don't have your backstage pass you're just not getting in. It, so that changed a lot. But I was there when they were loading out and it was fun. It was fun because yes, they were like they you know, I, I saw Adam Clayton come out in his bathrobe and it was just like talking and Jake Berry, who's still their, their manager, production, production manager, is an amazing person. So Jake was like, okay, because you know the limo was blocking all the trucks and we can't do nothing until they're out. And it's, there's not even a show. We're just doing rehearsal. But they, they were still, seriously, still the same. They're very nice. They were talking to everybody. They came out. They took the time to talk to their crew and all that. And there was not even a concert that day. It was just rehearsal. So they're still the same like 30 years later.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to hear that, Ghislaine. The only thing, as you point out, that's changed is it's for sure post 9-11. And also, as you get to become the kind of stars that they've become, it's more difficult to manage. And I understand that. And I, I love hearing that story that despite all of the things around them that have changed and grown, that they've kept their feet on the ground and that doesn't surprise me because of the the kind of people that they were when i when i first met them and you you know this there there's nothing to be gained by being an arsehole i think a lot of young artists get a little bit carried away with themselves you know i've been backstage when seeing guys yelling and throwing things and you quickly walk in the other direction most professionals don't behave that way and the The other thing that I don't know if it still exists anymore is, and I won't mention the bands, but what was stunning to me for the first couple of years that I was in the business and we would go on tour, opening up for other acts. You know, Queen City Kids was a band that we had success with and they, by and large, were opening shows for headliners. And I was always stunned by some of the things that I learned about, for example, backstage passes being treated for sexual favors and there was a particular big British band that toured in the 1980s that I, I happened to be backstage for and during the drum solo the guys all disappeared beneath the stage and it was quite a long drum solo and I expected to see the guys run out from below the stage I thought they would run out and pour water on their heads and get their towels and I waited and I waited and I said where are the other guys what is there a room under the stage or like what what are they doing and the road manager said to me they're busy and he just left it at that and I found out later that they invited that the crew would spot attractive women in the crowd before a Show and invite attractive women to go to the room below the stage, so that they can have a little party during the drum <laughs> solo. And I thought, ah, world well, of well,
1: social media, world of social media, that's changed a bit.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that probably doesn't happen much today, because, like you say, with iPhones and social media, that's not a good idea. Probably doesn't happen anymore. But that's one of my what the hell is going on, backstage stories?
3: You told me a backstage story once. I'm pretty sure it was you. And again, and I I won't name the artist, and I've heard a couple of these stories where it is announced in the corridor backstage that when so-and-so comes out of their dressing room, you will not look them in the eye. Have you experienced that too, Giselin? Absolutely, yeah.
0: I was invited by, and this is another era, I was invited by Polygram Records to go see Sue Medley in winnipeg she was opening for bob fucking dylan and i was backstage at you know i I don't know what it's called now i think it might be called it was just like you you probably know better than i it was the equivalent to plaza des are in winnipeg i think it might be the burton Cummings theater now and just an absolutely beautiful area backstage much like plaza des are is quite beautiful backstage very very comfortable and i'd seen sue medley and was quite taken with her and i was you know, I had an all-access pass, so I went backstage, and I sat on a couch, and I was waiting for the invitation. I knew enough to give her time to freshen up and de-stress from opening for Bob Dylan. And as I was sitting in the in the couch, guy came up to me and said, Move! And I said, Excuse me? He said, Move! There's nobody to be here in the hallway when Mr. Dylan is walking down the hall. I said, Fuck off. And they actually, they physically moved me. And as they were moving me, they were barking at everybody backstage, security people, catering people. No one is to look at Mr. Dillon as he walks to the stage. I thought to myself, you know what? Go fuck yourself. Like, honest to God. And this was the 1980s. Bob Dillon had been around for a very long time. And, you know, much like my conversation with Miles, I wanted to say, what the fuck is his problem? You're Bob Dylan. Like, what what is your problem? You're, you know, you're one of the most famous people in the world. You think people are not going to look at you? Anyway, that was quite disappointing to me.
1: So Terry, imagine working for them. Imagine going on tour with them. No, seriously, it happened to like somebody close to me is like, okay, I'm sitting at catering and the artist sits in front of me and I'm eating and I can't look at him. <laughs> what do you do? You just feel like getting up, taking your plate and going somewhere else because you're not allowed to talk or look at the person. It's like,
0: seriously? What I would like to do is sitting in front of the artist. I'd like to do the uh, the old show and tell with my food. Nah, <laughs> There, I'm not looking at, I'm not looking at you. <laughs> yeah. Well, this
3: is my dime store psychology take on that. I think that's insecurity manifesting itself as arrogance. I don't know how else to explain that. Surely no one who is secure in themselves would treat other people that way.
0: Well, again, if you you know if you look at the examples that go the other way, Jezleis mentioned both of them now. The guys in U two. What a great story to hear about that time in Laval. I I remember. I drove by the, La- the Laval building a couple of times and I could see all the trucks parked outside and I remember thinking to myself, "Geez, I'd love to get in and see those rehearsals." And I'll mention it again if you get a chance to see the documentary with Pink and you see what a a down-to-earth normal person she is and how she strives to stay in touch and how deeply appreciative she is for her success, meeting people like that and experiencing and I would imagine it's just like doing business with people like that must be very, very gratifying. It is. And it,
1: like you're saying, when people are nice to you, like, you know, we started our business. It's funny. We're talking about the Donald K. If you guys remember Lloyd Bro and the Brunetta sisters and all that, those amazing, you know, Donald did more than just bring concert. He created like amazing job, amazing talent, which 40
0: 50 years later is still
1: you know it's it's like we're we're the ripple effect of what donald did you know and
0: sorry just he created uh he created an amazing family that is still having repercussions today sylvie brunetta who's a dear dear friend of mine is still doing work for live nation deborah rathwell is you know a giant in the industry in new york city Deborah worked side by side with Donald for years. I'm telling you stuff you already know, but for people who don't know the business, Donald has left quite a legacy in inside the business.
1: Yeah. I think Rick Annette worked like forty years in the business, you know, talking about being the local rep. Those people like, you know, they it 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 is. It is a lifetime commitment. The the hours, like, you know, it it looks like it's it's glamorous and sexy, but you know, eighteen hours backstage with your stilto. Right now, they wear masks for eighteen hours. You know, they living in a bubble, like the bubble tour right now. It's it's like you see people; they they look like they, they're like uh, people from in a hospital. They come back with marks around their face, and it's like, where have you been? You know, been touring. So even right now, it's 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 harder than it's ever been with the mask.
0: Was one of the first things that astonished me when I went on my first arena tour with Streetheart and you know you'd walk into a building and look at the setup and the stage and the lights and everything just before sound check and then after the show you know I'd be in the dressing room and I would come out of the dressing room and the guys were already a quarter way into teardown and the trucks were being loaded and I remember saying to the road manager can't they do that tomorrow Like, I was so naive, and they said, well, no, they're going to load it in the truck. And I said, well, do they go to the hotel tonight? He said, no, you idiot. They get on the road, and they go to the next – they're on their way to Toronto now. And I said, well, do they sleep when they get – he said, no. They get to Toronto, and they start all over again. He said, they'll get to Toronto at like 6.30, and, you know, load in will be at 8.30, and they'll start again. Like when do these guys sleep? And he said, They don't. You know, you talk about the glamour, and I remember one of the first roadies that I met who was he he had to go up the lighting scaffolding, and I asked him what he did. He said to me, So, you wanted to join the fucking circus, eh? Up the trestle he went. For a lot of these guys, that's what they are. They're it's an interesting just letting you know this, it's an interesting crowd that loves these jobs and they love these jobs and they love being in the circus and they are odd characters and nobody works harder than they do. But it's a family. Like I said, you, you give, you know, you sacrifice
1: a lot being on the road for months, uh, sacrifice a lot of your friends and family. So they, they become your family. I mean, you know, you eat with them, you, you go through, you know, amazing moments, birthdays, you know, like I said, there's, you were talking about the pink. You should look at uh, the Buble Tour 148. If you like documentary like that, Buble as one that he did in England, which was the 148th show that they did. So it, it was about that, and it's funny because Bruce Allen's sons is on that. My sons on that. Friend of mine, Danny Richard is. So the kids. So you've got the old guys and the new guys, and they're sleeping on road cases in England on the ferry and the. You know, you want to go on a ferry in England in December, I mean, the sea will kick your butt, you know? So they're sick. And then it just it just shows you how much sacrifice. It's a good story about sacrifice, about not being, you know, at home for your kid's birthday, your wedding anniversary and all that. All that you miss to entertain people. And, I, you know, everybody around here understands that.
0: I'm going to check it out because I'm also a big. Bub- I think Bublé is a really nice man too. I think uh, he's he's uh, he's funny. Have have you seen those commercials for? Yeah, yeah. And by all accounts, from everybody I've spoken to, feet firmly planted on the ground, real down to earth.
3: And he's gone through some difficult times with his family as well. Uh, I think Shizline, we talked about this. His boy's good now, right? No, I had uh, cancer. I think it was liver cancer a few years back, and
1: he's okay now. So. But that changes everything again, you know, it, it changed them a lot.
3: Well, it also goes to show you that it doesn't, all the money in the world does not preclude you from experiencing some of the tragedies that anyone can experience and some of the adversity.
0: I got a question for you, just lane because I remember the guys talking about this. Who's got some of the best catering?
1: Oh, the nah, Steve, Steve's with me, Steve. Latitude 45 in LA. I mean, I, I, I you mean the ban or the
0: actual company? I guess people will relate more to the band. Bands pick certain companies because, like, I remember the crews going, oh, yeah, I'm going to work for Datara, and they and their catering is always amazing. For me, it was Cirque du Soleil.
3: Cirque du Soleil, I think, had the best food. We're going to bring in Steve Collard there. He's on the road uh, a lot with the guy. Lead driver, right, if I get that right? Yeah, he's one of the lead drivers or the lead driver for truck and roll.
2: I think, yeah, I saw a lot of uh, companies doing catering for bands. But honestly, for me, it's always been the locals. When there were no catering traveling with the bands. Local food? Yeah. The local, there's always a local crew, a local company that does the catering when you don't have a catering traveling with you on tour. So when you get to, let's say, Montreal, there's a crew that comes and the local crew do their stuff and do their, their food for local. So it's, a lot, it's always a lot better, so you can experience different food. I uh, experienced that when you go on tour and you have a company on tour, you, you'll always come back to the same food.
3: So for you, Steve, it's less about the band than where you are, than the location, eh?
2: Yeah, it's, it was most about that, but I'm not really a food guy, though. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that. I'm really, I'm really simple, but that's what I like the most is experience the local stuff.
1: I'm as big as you, uh, Terry. So I'll tell you, big top Cirque du Soleil, because those athletes burn so much calories that they have a chef on. The catering doesn't stop at Cirque, and they're big top, so they need to train and they burn calories a lot. So but it's actually, too healthy. They actually have to carb load. There was a mix. It, they're very healthy now, but you see, I've been around for like twenty some years, so I, I remember there as a Cirque, at the master Saucier. They used to make the best sauce. Like, they got this guy from Europe to make sauce. But Cirque, for me, Big Top, Cirque du Soleil at the best. Like, they had their own trailer. Like, we had two trailers, I think, even. Because they would turn it into a kitchen. So, for me, Cirque, Big Top food, that was like, yeah.
2: Like that. It was probably good because they were staying at the same place for, like, more than a month. So, That's they what? were probably able to buy the food locally and have time to, you know, to do different stuff.
1: Yeah, so Big tub. that would be my first pick. If you're going to go see Cirque, go to Kitchen at uh, at a Big tub Cirque.
2: Oh, yeah? You
3: could, like, as just as someone who's going, to, who's attending the show, you can go to the, uh, no, uh, no? No, just Joe, it's just for the crew. Oh, really, eh? Okay, well, I'm going to have to call you and get you to put in a good word for me. Well, it's good, because you used to visit, you know, to plan, you know, to plan move. How was the food on tour back in the day, Ter?
0: It's funny that Steve mentions that because you know, Streetheart wasn't Streetheart wasn't big enough to have their own catering company with them, so it it did depend on on where you went, and also, the much talked about riders were important. The things the guys wanted in the dressing room and the things that they wouldn't didn't want to have to eat on a tour. You know, the guys had some guys had dietary restrictions and. Back then, it wasn't as it, you know, it wasn't like today. Nobody talked about gluten free back in 1982, but um, it, the, the it depended on where you went and what I what I have a real strong memories of is most of the great food was out west because in Winnipeg and Saskatchewan there was a sort of a Ukrainian influence. So there was a lot of you know heavy, especially during a winter tour. There was a lot of pierogies and and stuff like that. When you got to Alberta, of course, what they wanted to display was their finesse with their beef. And then in Vancouver, there was a lot of often really, really good Asian food. So touring across the West with Streetheart was fun.
1: I have mean, a good story. I got a driver, been working he like with us for 10 years, and Brian Adam calls, like, oh, you're going, Brian Adam? I'm not going with Brian Adam. Okay, why? He's vegan. So I don't eat vegan, <laughs> I need meat. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go vegan for two months. You mean he won't let the crew eat meat? Well, the tour was vegan. That's, oh, okay. that's, it's, it was pretty vegan. So anyway, you say, I don't want to go on that tour. Give me a, give me a, give me a carnivore tour. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah uh, McCartney is like that. McCartney, McCartney will not, apparently when you tour with McCartney, there's no kind of, you know, the only protein backstage is tofu. It's hard to move those road cases 18 hours a day on fucking tomatoes. So I understand that. Can you imagine the three of us going vegan for two yeah. months? Yeah, let's go. Um, life's too short. Here's 10,000 pounds of equipment to move. Would you like a salad? Yeah, no kidding. Uh. Tara, are you still in touch with, uh,
3: with any of, of the guys from back in the day? And I know that some of them have passed. Kenny Shields. I know the the lead singer for Streetheart, with whom you were close, he passed away some years ago, did he not?
0: yeah, yeah, he passed away three years ago. Kenny and I were very, very close. It was an awful an awful loss. I'm in close contact with Jeff Neal, who's the guitar player and has become kind of the uh the legacy of Streetheart is in his hands he's you know he's the keeper of the the name and they've got some new songs coming apparently I'm in touch with. The guys, I just had a nice Zoom meeting a couple of months ago with the guys in the Queen City Kids, who uh, thankfully are all still with us, and I keep in touch a little bit with some of the people, the road managers and some of the crew members from back then, but it was such a long time ago, and I'm no longer in touch, haven't been for years with their manager, Gary. That was not a relationship that ended well, so I haven't spoken to him, but there are a lot of there some of the people are gone you know unfortunately the i had a really nice friendship with dean cameron who was the president of Capitol records he was our artist and repertoire guy when streetheart were making records for Capitol in the 80s and we lost him a few years ago so a lot of people have um, have left the party and and some people we've stayed in touch with a lot of the guys you know the guys in in the queen city kids John Donnelly is now an event guy out in British Columbia. Alex Chiwaki who was the main guitar player, he became a commercial real estate giant in Vancouver and now lives on Vancouver Island. And the drummer is an optometrist on Vancouver Island. And Kevin Finn who was a guitar player and songwriter, he got involved in the movie business in Regina and they would reunite for two or three shows every year. They do a couple of New Year's shows. And it's always fascinating to me, you know, a few years ago, I I tried to get to the show and I couldn't. The Queen City kids were doing a New Year's event in uh, in Winnipeg for New Year's Eve. And they sold 5,000 tickets, 5,000 people turned up for that show. So a lot of it is, I guess, nostalgia for a, a different time, but also I think a tribute to how good they were live.
3: I can't let you go without telling the ET story. That's one of my favorite stories of yours, and you've got a bunch of them.
0: Yeah, well, if you're you're involved in the rock and roll circus, you'll know there are very few days off. And on this particular tour with Streetheart, we had left Winnipeg, and I think we did Winnipeg, Brandon, and then we had a day off in Regina. Because one of the things about organizing a tour is the building of veils. You know, it's really hard to get a, a you know. The Jets aren't playing in Winnipeg on Tuesday, but somebody's playing in the building in Regina on Thursday. So, you know, you were forced to take a day off, which managers hated because it costs money. You have to spend extra money on hotels. you got to feed the guys, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we had this day off in Regina, and I, being a movie buff, I wanted to see E.T. E.T. was this movie, and it was much talked about, and, you know, we had been working and hadn't had a chance to do anything like see a movie. And I mentioned to Kenny that I wanted to see E.T. And he said, when are you going? And I said, well, I'll go this afternoon. And he said, can I come with you? And I said, yeah, of course. And then I went, knocked on his door, and he said, well, now uh, Alan and Dean want to come. And I said, yeah, okay. And then anyway, we ended up at the theater. There was about eight of us all in a row, pretty close to the front of the screen. And it was me and Kenny and I think two, maybe one guy in the band the guitar roadie and then roadies and roadies are they're tough they're no nonsense tough people usually with you know earrings and tattoos and they don't have a penchant for showering they don't have time to comb their hair (laughs) like they're they're tough guys they're tough guys and so we're watching this movie and if you're familiar with the the movie at the end of the movie the premise of the the movie et i feel stupid even saying this but it's like a boy and his dog and you know the kid standing in front of the monster saying goodbye and i cry at the drop of a hat uh, like i i cry at phone commercials i open birthday cards and go that's so nice thanks you know like i, I just i'm an easy touch for the tears So the kid is looking at the monster, and his eyes are filling with tears, and he's saying to E.T., "I'll be right here." And the monster is begging the kid to say. And I'm thinking, "Oh my God, I'm gonna cry." And I think to myself, "I can't, I can't cry in front of the crew. I can't, I can't cry in front of the crew. I'll never live it down." So I begin to pinch the inside of my legs. Like, I grab just right by my balls, and I'm pinching my legs like this, and I'm thinking, and meantime, it's getting worse on the screen. They stay, and the kids are hugging the monster, and the kids are crying, and I'm pinching, and I finally can't take it anymore. And you know when you're trying to stifle a cry, and your breath catches, and I ended up doing this. And I burst into tears, and Kenny began to cry, and then the roadies began to cry. And there was, like, this rock and roll circus all in the front row going, this is the fucking saddest movie I've ever seen. And leaving the theater, of course, Kenny said, we will not speak of this. <laughs> I said, I get it. I get it.
3: Thanks, Tara. That was really good. That's as well as you've ever told that story, and I've heard it a few times. But I thought it was one of the group. I thought groupies. I thought it was one of the roadies that did the, <laughs> it was you, eh?
0: <laughs> Ted loves that story, and it's a story that obviously sticks with me. If you know anybody who's a roadie, you know they're not criers right i've seen roadies drop like hundred pound lights on their toes and go ah fuck <laughs> and you and mrs still watch et and still cry right yeah i i still to this day i just one of my favorite movies and to this day I, I can't when my my wife and i were first getting together she said have you seen et i said uh yeah <laughs> and she said let's watch it and i said Uh, uh, okay. (laughs) And of course, you know, the both of us were crying at the end. She won't even let me do every once in a while. I'll go, I'll be right here. And she goes, stop it. (laughs) Tara, thanks for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I hope I, I hope I didn't bore anybody because it was a, it was really great fun. It was, just like, it was a real a real pleasure to meet you.
1: Same here. Same really, here. really
0: nice to meet you. I'd, I'd love for us to have dinner one day. We probably got some fun stories about the same people.
1: The same families, yes, for
0: sure. Yeah. Yep. I was really, really glad Ted asked me to come aboard today. It was fun. Well, we really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Backstage Stories. Crew are people too. Produced and presented by Truck and Roll. Specialists in concert and entertainment transportation. The road
2: is our stage. Visit truckandroll.com.
0: Let's
2: Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.